Loving God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honour and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh, well, if you have Acts 17 in front of you, that's good. We're going to start there and we're going to be flipping around the Bible a little bit. I want to start by giving some uh, big picture stuff about Acts 17. Uh, so Paul has arrived in Athens. The first thing he does is he goes to the local synagogue. Uh, Paul is a Jew himself, so he goes to the people with whom he has a, a shared language. They understand each other. They understand uh, what they're about. And so Paul can discuss with him them and he can talk about how the Messiah that they've been waiting for for thousands of years has arrived, Jesus Christ, who died for their sins and rose again. After that, he heads out into the local marketplace. This is a great place to just, you know, kind of cold call, chat with absolutely anybody. And he does so. A couple of philosophical dudes, uh, and these guys invite him to come along to another marketplace. But this is a special kind of marketplace. On the top of a hill in Athens is a place called the Areopagus. And this is where people come and they discuss all the latest and greatest ideas. It's a marketplace for ideas. And Paul has this wonderful opportunity there to preach the gospel. But he recognizes that there is one big problem that they have up there. At the Areopagus, they love chatting about different stuff. Uh, but for so many of the people up there, they love to chat about things in an abstract way. You know, they hold them at arm's length and they don't really encourage themselves to think about it as a, something that they'll personally value. So much so that they can build an altar to an unknown God. They don't even need to know that God. It is just an abstract thing for them. They weren't looking for a God that they could follow with whom they could have a relationship. They were looking to be the king of their own little world and they could sit there and they could judge ideas that were good or bad, ones that they liked and they didn't, and they could always keep some distance. And so as Paul speaks to them, he has to close that distance. First, he looks forward to the time that they are in and he says, well, uh, really we want to, you're a people who want to know more, even so much so that you'll include unknown gods. But then he takes them back. He says, but really you need to think more about these abstract gods and look at the beginning of history. God is the one who flings the stars into the space. He is the one who has created everything. This is the God you should want to engage with. But then he wants to look out beyond that. If you want to know the God who is the creator of everything, then don't look at these idols of gold or silver or stone, verse 29. These are all created things. Even if you build a temple to your God, that's still a created thing. But God is the one who created everything. He's not kind of uh, constrained or restrained within a piece of marble or metal or gold. And then finally he pushes inward to their hearts. Verse 30, God has overlooked this time of ignorance but he is coming to judge the world because he raised Jesus from the dead. It's a great effort, I think, by Paul to move from an abstract concept. I can talk about God, but it's always this thing over here, and to bring it into a real reality that they're confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ living and breathing blood and bone and flesh who lived amongst people, died and rose again. Now, that was really powerful in the Areopagus, but we don't have a, you don't go up to the top of Mount Canobolus and discuss all the latest ideas that you've learned on the interwebs. Uh, what is the equivalent for us today? 
Well, we see people asking a lot about the question of Jesus, who he is, but we see it in different ways. In uh, late 2004, I was in a Berlin airport. I was bored and I was hoping that I could find a book in English so I could have uh, something to read for the next five hours. And that's when I found a copy of The Da Vinci Code. Uh, I don't know if you read this book by Dan Brown. Uh, I'm about to spoil it if you haven't read it, so just you're going to have to live with that. Uh, it's a wild story about the protagonist, Robert Langdon, uh, played by Tom Hanks in the movie, if you don't read books at all. Uh, and he is a guy who is a historian and he is looking for something special, a holy grail. And while he's looking for it, people are trying to kill him. But it turns out that the real holy grail uh, isn't like Indiana Jones movies where it's a cup you get to drink out of. But instead, it turns out Jesus didn't die on the cross. He married Mary Magdalene. Uh, They went and had kids, and the Holy Grail is actually Jesus' descendants who are amongst the people now. If only we all knew. Uh, What made this piece of fiction even wilder is that uh, Brown claims at the beginning of the book that this fictional story is really based on a bunch of facts. If only those dullards out in the world knew the real thing, we'd know that Jesus did this stuff. Of course, if you went home tonight and you Googled the Da Vinci Code, Uh, you'd get a hundred or maybe even a thousand different books and articles that have been written about how bad a historian Dan Brown really was. None of what he said was true. He is a goose. But nevertheless, when you sell 80 million copies of a book, no matter how big of a goose you are, people are going to believe some of the stuff you say. For many people, when they want to engage with the question about Jesus, the only picture they have in their head is a Dan Brown picture. Jesus is married and he's gone and had kids and we're just silly if we think anything else. Three years after Dan Brown, Oxford biologist and famous atheist Richard Dawkins had a crack with his book, The God Delusion. If Brown took a a big step saying that Jesus got married, Dawkins jumped over that step and out into a new area when he said, "I, I don't think Jesus even existed at all. Listen to this quote. It's even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, uh, historical case that Jesus never lived at all, as has been done by, amongst other professors, G.A. Wells of the University of London in a number of books, including Did Jesus Exist? For a lot of people, they read this and they said, well, a professor said that Jesus exists. I didn't exist, so maybe that's true. Of course, Dawkins didn't mention that uh, G.A. Wells wasn't a professor of, uh, of history or theology Uh, or philosophy, or even literature, or anthropology, who is a professor of German. Uh, Why that means he thinks he can tell us whether or not Jesus exists, nobody knew. And so for many people, they pilloried uh, Dawkins' attempts. This guy can't really be taken seriously. He should stick to biology instead of history. And yet when people like Dan Brown and Richard Dawkins sow the seed of doubt in the minds of people who read, this is the idea of Jesus that they carry. This is the modern-day Areopagus where anybody can throw anything onto a book or throw it out onto the internet and people consume it and it can be hard to work out what is true. For most people, they have some concept of Jesus because we get two public holidays out of him. So he has to be in the public consciousness in some kind of way. But tonight we want to ask that question that is worth asking, and that is, who is Jesus? And so I'm going to do that by looking in four different directions because I like to keep things simple. We're going to be looking backward. Is Jesus a real historical figure? Then we're going to look forward. Who is the Jesus that the disciples followed, that they carried out following him? 
Then we're going to look outward. How has Jesus shaped our world? But then finally, we need to look inward. Who do I say that Jesus is? What does it mean for my life? And this is a question we all need to ask. We're going to start by looking backward. Uh, in his, uh, the last years of his life, my uh, stepdad got really interested in uh, tracing his family history, you know, drawing that family tree, so much so that he was preparing to fly to England so he could visit a particular graveyard. Uh, you know, I used to joke it was like, you know, some people, they get into kind of uh, drugs or sport or other kind of things. We, he got old. The drug of choice for my stepdad was Ancestry.com. He couldn't get enough. He would, he would mainline it if he could. He needed it all the time. And as he got more and more interested, I realized at that point actually how little I knew about my family. It started when I found out that I didn't actually know my mum's name. I thought her um, name was uh, Elizabeth. Turned out it was actually Anne. Um, who goes by the middle names? I don't understand. Uh, then I found out I, I was challenged. I didn't even know what my great-granddad's name was. When I started pushing out beyond cousins or immediate re relationships, I didn't know anybody. And you have that moment where you realize, you look back a couple of generations and it's all just a, a kind of foggy mess. You have that moment where you realize, no matter how important I think my life is, no matter how much I focus on the circles around me right now, in a couple of generations, I will most likely disappear like a drop of water into the vast sea of humanity. And friends, this is true for most of us. Few but the most famous people in history will have names that carry on throughout the centuries. And the further back you go, the more you realize this is true. Uh, there are some people we know. We know the, the Captain Cooks or the Martin Luthers or those big people. But for most people, they just disappear into history. So much We see so much so that one of the great examples is uh, Julius Caesar. We're only, we only just get to know him. We know because we have little pieces of uh, coins that have his name on it, little bits of rock. But did you know that between Julius Caesar's life and the first uh, recorded writing about Ju Julius Caesar, there is 900-year gap. His name almost completely disappeared into history if we hadn't have managed to find a couple of important pieces of paper. I mention this by point of comparison because when we look to Jesus, when we look at the ancient manuscripts, part of the Gospels, we have uh, literally thousands and thousands, over 12,000 pieces of manuscripts from the first couple of centuries after Jesus' time. Not only is Jesus spoken throughout the Gospels, uh, but we see Jesus is spoken by heaps of non-Christian sources as well. Uh, if you're in high school doing ancient history or uni, then you can look up some of these primary sources like Josephus and Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, and my favourite name, I wish I could have named a kid after him, Mara Bar Serapion. Uh, that would have been great at roll call in the mornings. All of these people who weren't Christians themselves, in fact, some of them actually hated Christianity, uh, but they wrote about Jesus and the claims that Jesus has made about himself. As a figure of ancient history, there is nobody so well attested in history as Jesus Christ. So much so that the Australian historian and speaker John Dixon fam famously put a challenge on the internet 10 years ago. He said, I will eat a page of my Bible if someone can find me just one full professor of ancient history, classics or New Testament who thinks that Jesus didn't exist. I spoke to him a couple of months ago and he still hasn't eaten that page. We can look back to Jesus more confidently than we can any ancient character in history. 
even without the eyewitness accounts that we have from Jesus' very own followers. How much better that we have those eyewitnesses accounts that we can read. We can read the books of Matthew and John, disciples of Jesus who spent time with him, who invested in him, who followed where he went. That you have Mark, who was an early believer, who wrote a nice, concise gospel that we can read. And that you have someone like Luke, who gives this wonderful quote at the beginning of uh, his, his gospel. He says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. And so it also seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus. Luke makes things absolutely crystal clear. A carefully investigated and a compiled biography written down by himself to Theophilus, which the name just means lover of God. It could have been a person. It could mean you or I if we love God so that we might know and that we might have confidence in the gospel. The starting point for Jesus as a real historic character is rock solid. But when we look forward into the history of the first disciples, not only do we hear how things were written down, but we can see how Jesus' faith was lived out. In the last couple of centuries, it's become uh, more and more popular by some academics to say uh, the, Jesus of the, the Jesus of the Bible is really just a metaphor for us to read. Uh, modern people sometimes argue uh, Jesus was a great teacher and so what the disciples did is they said, well, a teacher has died and I want to carry his teaching in my heart so I'm going to resurrect Jesus in my heart and carry him with me and somehow that became a story about a physical resurrection but really we know that can't be true. There are loads of problems with this, but I want to give you the three most simple ones. Uh, Firstly, Jesus taught himself that this was not the case. This is not how he taught. This is not what he was about. Listen to what we read in Matthew 16. Jesus began to point out to his disciples, this is long before his death, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he'd suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and finally that he'd be killed and that he'd be raised on the third day. Jesus hung his ministry, what he was all about, on these realities. This is who he was and what he came to do. And the early church, if anything, was only clearer about that. Paul famously went as far as to say, having just written about how 500 people had met the risen Jesus, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we were fools for following him. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have just perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Jesus was clear. His ministry hung on the fact that he came to die for our sins and rise again. Paul and the early apostles were clear that this is what brought us together, not only the teaching but the power of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. But for me, one evidence that really spoke powerfully to me in my teenage years was what academics call the criterion of embarrassment. That is that to follow Jesus in those early centuries was an embarrassing thing. It was not something that was cool to do. It was not something that was publicly encouraged. Jesus died like a criminal, and in fact they killed him the most embarrassing way they could. To die on the cross was to be very publicly humiliated. 
none of the early apostles gained wealth or social stature for their faith. In fact, of all of uh, the, the apostles, only John died of old age. All of the other ones died an early death for the sake of the gospel. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 uh, lays out how he has suffered all kinds of ways for the sake of the gospel, being shipwrecked and beaten and mocked and scorned. For almost 300 years, Christians would be openly persecuted and even killed for their profession of faith. And yet despite all of this persecution, the church explodes. This good news keeps on going out and growing. If the disciples knew that Jesus never left the grave, they could have made a hundred different other decisions, but they followed the risen Jesus. If in the early church it was still easy to go up to the witnesses and to find out Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then the early church could have gone and done something else. But as they look forward from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, the truth of the gospel drove people out and forward because they had a hope for their future and a new perspective in their world today. And when we look back at the disciples and the early church, it's perfectly clear that they looked forward to Jesus' return. And this is why we see the disciples take Jesus' challenge in Luke 9.23, that they take up their cross and they follow him. Because Jesus didn't teach a a feel-good message. His encouragement wasn't learn some good lessons from me and then go and put them into practice. Jesus wanted followers to recognize him as Lord and Saviour. And to be like him. And this is the very thing that we see. And one of the greatest indicators that Jesus really did change hearts. As we see uh, people in his character go out with the gospel and change the world. Uh, One fascinating import into Australian culture has been the American baseball cap. Anytime other than where I'm preaching, usually this is what I, I will be wearing, partly because I'm bored and I'm embarrassed by it, uh, but also because I, live the Pit- I love the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Pittsburgh Steelers and any other Pittsburgh team. Uh, now, you may not have noticed, but I'm a little bit of an extrovert. Uh, and what I really love is that when I can go into a, a town on any given day, if you're walking down the main street in Orange, you'll see at least one or two people wearing an American baseball cap. And this is my opportunity to start a conversation. Hey, you like the, Lang- the Yankees? Oh, I really like baseball. How did you end up following them? Bloody, bloody, bar. We get into a conversation and then I'm a happy man and maybe I can tell them about church. Uh, that's occasionally how the conversation goes. Uh, more often, this is how the conversation goes. Hey, you like the Yankees? And they say, I don't know who the Yankees are. And I say, you're wearing a Yankees hat. And they say, I just bought it because it was blue and it matches my eyes. Uh, that's okay. I want to say, if you don't know who the Pittsburgh Pirates are or the Yankees or whoever is on the hat you're wearing right now, that's okay because a hat is primarily just a fashion choice. You can put it on if it matches the things you're wearing. You can throw it away when you're not. Uh, The problem is when you take something that is important, that that says something about your character and who you are, and you make it into a disposable thing. And the reality was that for a lot of people, this was their attitude to their religion. This is one of those things that runs through much of the Old Testament and one of those things that Jesus speaks out against regularly. In the Old, Old Testament, you see that the nation of Israel was good at wearing their faith as a spiritual hat. They made sure that they attended the temple. They gave sacrifices at certain times. 
but the reality was it was more of a fashion thing or it was more about their culture and who they were and it was less about a personal relationship they had. This means that even an act of obedience or worship became a, a functional or a mechanical thing rather than a relational thing. We understand that because we've all been in that situation where your mum or your dad says you need to apologise to your sibling and with your mouth you say, I'm sorry for punching you in the face. But with your eyes you say, I'm going to punch you ten times harder when mum leaves later on today. Jesus picks up on this in Isaiah's 29 phrase that he quotes when he says, the people, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is the very thing that Jesus speaks against in his most famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount. He'd seen the Pharisees and the the rulers of the day who were very good at setting a, a list of rules that you had to keep, but they were horrible when it came to seeing how that flowed out into people's lives, how they might actually live for the God that they followed. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes these rules and he really teases them out. He says, well, you've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you look at another woman lustfully with your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. How come you keep on pointing out the splendor in your brother's eye, but you've got a beam in your own eye? Jesus takes this set of boxes that somebody might tick. I haven't actually committed adultery. I haven't actually killed somebody. And he says, well, what does it really look like to embody that? to actually seek to live this fully and to think about how it might play into all my relationships, into all of my life. How might I reflect the goodness of God in everything that I do? Better yet, Jesus showed us what that looked like because he embodies what it is to live the way God calls us to. And we get this picked up so beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Paul tells us, adopt the the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the very form of God, that is, he had all of the power of God, the qualities of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he empties himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and made himself obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. This radical mindset of Jesus is something that flowed out into the world as Christians sought to be more like Jesus in the way that they lived their lives. Even more so, Christians realized that they were the body of Christ, that we are the representation of Christ to the world around us. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us, that Christ is their head and the church is his body reaching out into the world. When it comes to the question of Jesus, the reality is, that when we see ourselves as the body of Christ, that we do represent him in the relationships that we have in our day-to-day conversations. It's scary and exciting to think that the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus who's been going out into the world for 2,000 years as men and women and children take seriously the call to live self-sacrificially and to be more like him in the way they go about things. Jesus isn't just relegated to history because he rose from the dead. And his followers were so convinced of this because many of them met him after his resurrection. And their conviction was shown in their willingness even to die for their faith. And Jesus' followers continue to seek him, not just to seek a set of rules to live by, not just to seek a, a vague notion of loving and being nice people, but praying that God's spirit might dwell in us, 
that we might know God more fully, that we might become more like Jesus every single day, and that as we do so, that other people might see a little bit of Jesus in us and they might want to know a little bit more. And so as we look back to Jesus 2,000 years ago, as we look forward from his resurrection and we see his followers follow him, and as we look out to see how Jesus has shaped the society around him, the challenge in the end is less about Jesus. But the big question is actually when we look inward. If the 21st century has been about anything, it's been about the power of the subjective. That is, more and more of the decisions in our lives are about me, about whether I agree with something, what I want, whether or not something meets my needs. When I was growing up as a kid, I'd go and visit my dad in the country town called Canamble, and uh, there were two channels we could choose from, uh, ABC and SBS. That was it. But now we live in the Netflix world where I can watch any show, any time. It's about me, 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 and what I want and when I want it. The things I watch, the work I do, even the pronouns by which you refer to me are things that are subjective now. I choose how I want to be referred to. And the temptation is to treat Jesus like a subjective character as well, like a baseball cap that I can choose to put on when I want, maybe on a Sunday night and maybe once again at at youth group, but I take off when it doesn't suit me. But the gospel itself is an objective truth. God himself enters down into history, reaches into his world, takes on human flesh and lives and dies and rises again. In a world filled with abstracts and subjective values, Jesus is an objective person in history who calls us to respond to him. And this is why Paul lands that challenge on the, uh, the hill, the Areopagus, in verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Friends, the question about Jesus requires us to ask some real questions about ourselves. Am I willing to realize that I'm not the king of the universe? And that maybe I need to bow down to somebody greater than me? If I'm willing to consider that, have I really engaged with the truth of Jesus? Not just a teacher or an all-around great guy but as the Lord who lived and died and rose again. Not just a hat I choose to put on and take off, but somebody I need to follow. And if I recognize who he is and what he's done, am I willing to follow him? Let's pray about that now. Let's bow our heads. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We thank you that you are not just a God of the abstract, somebody that we hold at arm's length, but you are a God who loves to be involved in the messiness of our lives. That you acknowledge sin and that you deal with it. That you offer us new life and new hope and a new start. And better yet, Lord, that you you use us to share this good news with others. Help us, Lord, to be convicted of the truth about Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. Help us to live that out meaningfully in our lives. We pray, Lord, that as you make us more like Jesus, that you would help see people in Orange and beyond to see Jesus in our lives and to turn to him in repentance and faith. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name.
Amén.